Hello, and welcome to Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we invite real-life cultural luminaries and their dream guests to dinner. I'm Monica, a fashion and culture journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, a writer, cookbook author, and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. Emma, welcome to a dinner of such epic musical proportions, its imaginary dinner guest need not go by their full name. Let's see. Is it Madonna? Is it Rihanna? Okay, how about Prince? No, but you're getting warmer, at least from a fashion perspective. Ah, yes, I see. You mean a prodigy who was born into a musical family in Salzburg in 1756 and baptized the very next day as Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Theophilus, though he preferred the Latin form of that last one, Amadeus. Mozart! Mozart who is being summoned to join us by a guest who is uniquely positioned to pull off such a feat, the director of the Paris opera, Alexander Neef. Alexander Neef was recently made a commandeur de l'ordre des arts et des lettres, commander of the Order of Arts and Letters, by none other than President Emmanuel Macron and the French culture minister. And this is music to our ears, as Mr. Neef has been doing an exceptional job of modernizing the opera since he took up his duties ahead of schedule as director general in 2020. Not the easiest time to take the reins, it must be said. No, indeed. Alexander took on one of the most prestigious jobs in culture amid, as the New York Times put it, a pandemic, labor strikes, and internal unrest, walking straight into an anus horribus. However, he did not get discouraged, and after a brief stunt juggling two jobs on two continents, Alexander left his post as general director of the Canadian Opera Company and assumed his current place in Paris. Poor old Toronto. But wait, Emma, before he gets here, did you prepare a quick game of two truths and a lie, Mozart style, for old time's sake? I did. How did you know? Okay, <laughs> here it goes. One, Mozart was terrified of the trumpet as a child. To point a trumpet at him was apparently likened by a family friend to aiming a pistol at his heart. <laughs> Two, he wrote some supremely scatological letters to his sister, Nuneral. And three, he enjoyed a close relationship with his father, Leopold Mozart, until the end. I think number three is the lie because they had some serious beef, didn't they? Yeah, darn, you got it. And I think we're going to get more into that. But funny about the trumpet, no? <laughs> I mean, extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> trumpets are kind of an aggressive instrument. I will give him that. And if anyone's sense of humor runs to the scatological, I highly recommend looking up some of Mozart's letters because I do not exaggerate. There are even drawings in some of them. Funny little sketches. <laughs> I look forward to those. Okay, so back to L'Avenue de l'Opéra. For those unfamiliar with the Paris opera, it sort of represents the pinnacle of high culture in France, and some might say worldwide. Its importance visually is represented by the magnifique Palais Garnier Opera House in central Paris, which is not unlike the stunning Sicilian opera house featured in a recent episode of White Lotus, even more mesmerizing and definitely worth a Google. Is that the Queen of Sicily? <laughs> yeah, so the interiors of the Palais Garnier are truly breathtaking for its sheer opulence, really. The opera was built from 1861 to 1875 at the behest of Emperor Napoleon III, and besides being one of the most expensive buildings constructed during the Second Empire, it is also acknowledged to be one of its masterpieces of the first rank. 
Before he arrives, Mokes, can we hear a little bit more about Alexander and how he got to be in charge of the Paris Opera? Yeah, so even though he comes to us by way of our hometown Toronto, Alexander was actually born in Roswald in Germany, near Stuttgart, and began his career as a production manager at the Salzburg Festival before joining the artistic administration of the Ruhr Triennale, a multidisciplinary festival for which he was responsible for opera, theatre, dance, productions, as well as concerts and events. At the request of Gérard Mortier, then director of the Paris Opera, he joined the latter institution from 2004 to 2008 as casting director. Then, from 2008 to 2020, Alexander was the general director, as I mentioned, of the Canadian Opera Company, here in Toronto, where he developed co-productions with many of the world's leading operas and ballets. Fun fact, I've recently been to the opera and to the ballet at the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts here in Toronto, where Alexander used to work. And at the opera I saw, his name was on the program. It was like the, basically the show was dedicated to him. So he clearly has left a very lasting impression. Uh, in Toronto, he welcomed world-renowned singers, conductors. Deal. I know. I was like, I know him. Uh, singers, conductors, <laughs> directors, and artists presenting notable world premieres and bringing new energy to the Canadian Opera Company Ensemble Studio, a renowned training program for young opera singers. Oh, and all the while, while also maintaining a role as first artistic director of Santa Fe Opera in the U.S. Whew. But how did Alexander become one of the world's leading classical music experts? Especially as, according to his bio, he didn't grow up in a particularly musical family. Well, I'm really excited to hear about the ins and outs of his relationship with our imaginary guest today, Mozart. Alexander, great to see you here. Thanks for joining us. I know you're a, a busy man. Thanks for having me. We were just discussing your extremely impressive biography, and we were wondering, how exactly did you get into classical music in the first place? Well, I grew up in Germany and second half of the 70s, early 80s, and not in a family that had any interest in classical music, really. But I picked it up from the radio and from school. Interestingly, my grandfather in those days, you remember um, tapes, like music cassettes. So he owned one music cassette of Mozart overtures and nobody knew why and he never listened to it. But we would go and visit my grandparents almost every weekend and I would always listen to that until he gave it to me. And I still have it somewhere. And that was really the first thing. I just loved that music. That was probably the point of no return. And at what point did you realize that you could make this into a career? Not until quite late, I have to say. I went to university to, uh, university to study Latin and history become a school teacher because my like interest in music and classical music, I never considered that actually a, a job opportunity. I just simply didn't dawn on me really because it was so far from my reality that I thought, well, it's great that there are people who do that. But um, it was just, I didn't, it was not even that I was like envious to do it or anything. It was just really not on the, on the map. And then in university, it happened that Practically all my friends were musicologists, were musicians, or we would go to the opera and to concerts and um, things like that all the time. And then I think two years before I finished, a couple of friends from Berlin called me and they were just putting together like a student initiative, uh, an academy about opera today. And they called and said, you should be part of this because you know so much about opera. And that's why I met Gérard Mortier, who at that time was running the Salzburg Festival. 
Um, like he was one of the most important um, opera managers in the 70s, 80s, 90s, right up until he died in 2014. And he took a great liking to that whole group. And I think in the end, like maybe four or five people of the group ended up working for him. Um, and he was the one who said to me at some point, like, it's absolutely not possible that you become a school teacher. <laughs> and he, he, he let me finish my studies and then he gave me a job right out of university. Wow. As an assistant. And then I worked with him for 10 years in different places, one of them Paris. And that really, like, he invented me. Wait, backing up for one second, I'm just wondering, do you like play any musical instruments? Are you, do you sing? Are you into the creation of music as an individual? Well, one of, one of the things that, that got me into music was singing in, well, in kindergarten in a school, the school choir. And the director of the school, he used, always used to play the piano to accompany the choir. And I just loved that. And so the, the, the basic music education in those days like extracurricular was like playing the recorder and I hated the recorder with a passion. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> it was really, no, it was really, really terrible. Um, especially when you have like 20 kids playing the recorder together. This is like inferno. Not the most magic flute. <laughs> no, but I loved my, my the director of my school playing the piano for the choir rehearsals. And so when I was kind of done with my couple of years of, of recorder, my grandmother, at the time, she said, you know, if you want to continue playing an instrument, uh, learn another instrument after the recorder, I'm going to buy it for you. Now, she thought of something like another, another flute or something. And when I said, I want to play piano, um, she was a bit like, uh, okay, um, it's not, not really the price tag I had attached to my promise. But she, did, but she did buy me a piano. And, and so I've been playing the piano ever since, even though I, since I work in opera, I have very little time to do it. And it's only for myself. But I think it's for what I do, I think it's really important to be able to read music and to, to understand the score because otherwise it's a bit hard to talk to conductors, directors. And... Absolutely. Going back to childhood for one more second, but do you remember what the first opera you ever saw was? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've, I first um, listened to a lot of opera on the radio and on recordings. And the first opera that I actually saw in the theater, I was maybe 13, I think, was Beethoven's Fidelio. And I can still see it. It was so, wow. That's probably the, the second point of no return. I was like, okay, this is uh, going to be part of my life. Did you go with school or who brought you? Uh, my, my parents took me. Good parents. So they, were they encouraging of your musical passion? My parents were really encouraging uh, in everything I wanted to do, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm able to do today what I'm doing. Because they never, like neither in a good or a bad way, tried to be in my way. I, and I remember that very distinctly um, because even from, from where we came from, like becoming um, a school teacher was a pretty important step up the social ladder. And so when I came to them and said, you know, I don't want to be a school teacher. I want to be in opera and Moti has offered me a job and that's what I want to do with my life. There was not really a discussion about that. My, I just remember my father asking, are you really sure you want to do that? And that was the whole discussion we had about it. And thinking back at, the, at that and how some of my, my, my friends' careers, or don't even have to call it careers, but just lives have worked out, and what, what kind of role their parents played in that, for the better or the worse, I'm really very grateful for how my parents dealt with it. Oh, that's great to hear. That's inspiring. It sounds like uh, your father was a lot less pushy than our friend Mozart's father, who, uh, who we've been learning about in the past few days. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking of Leopold Mozart, so, you know, we have 
several biographies. We have at least one Hollywood movie. We have many letters. We have other historical records. And of course, the music that tell us what Mozart was like. But how do you think about him? How does our how does tonight's imaginary dinner guest live in your mind? You know, it's very interesting because, um, as I told you, he lives in my mind ever since this um, music cassette of Mozart Overtures that my um, grandfather owned. I don't really think of him as a person. I think there's most composers I don't think of as persons because you mostly encounter them in their music. And um, sometimes it's better not to know too much biographical detail because it actually get, kind of makes them less sympathetic as people. We know too much about Wagner and it's really a problem. <laughs> Right, just, just one example, there's many more. And, and you see, the thing about Mozart is that it's so unique, and that's true for other composers too, but what he did was just such pure magic, and he did it at such a young age because he aged, you know, he died when he was 35. And you look at the, 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 the depth and the maturity and the beauty that he was able to put in his music, it's something that you actually can't teach people. Then comes the personal touch. And, and the, the personal touch part in Mozart is just so incredible because it's all so well put. You know, sometimes it's just kind of an oboe coming in and kind of nobody had ever done that before. And you're just like, the depth of that experience is so striking. And you can't copy it either, right? People have tried, but it's like there's only, there's, there's composers who you can copy and it sounds a little bit like them, even though it's never quite them. But Mozart is just Mozart. And um, it's like, you know, he, he wrote music from when he was very, very little. So it's about, let's say, 25, 30 years of music um, by Mozart. And the trajectory is incredible. I mean, you look where he ended up with the magic flute, which you just saw. Yes, <laughs> which I, very luckily for me, just saw. It was beautiful. Like his last two free operas, the last symphonies, all of that is just like, he opens this door for us to go through and he couldn't go through it himself anymore. And so this thought about, my God, what he achieved in this very short life, where would music have ended up if he had lived another 25, 30 years, right, or longer? One thing that really struck me, I've been listening to a, a biography of Mozart by Jan Swafford, and one line that stuck with me was that he refused to let his music be subservient to anything. He was willing to play, you know, to, to write what needed to be written at the time for Emperor Joseph II. You know, if it needed to be a German opera, he would write a German opera. If it needed to be an Italian, he would write an Italian. But once it came to writing the music, he was not usually amenable to edits. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually a very good and important point. I think you can never, and that's true for any kind of art, disconnect that from what's going on in society at the same time. And, you know, Mozart died just two years after the French Revolution had broken out. And there was obviously with the Enlightenment and all those new ideas that came up in the second half of the 18th century, there was a lot going on intellectually. And he was one of the very first composers who tried to not be employed. Right. He was freelance. Right. Because you have to, you know, when we, when we kind of think about Mozart today, in his day, he would have eaten in the kitchen with the servants. Because that's what his social status was as a, as a musician, even as a composer. And almost everybody in, in that time, look at Haydn, who's a 
uh, was a little bit older than he was and, and lived much longer, but Haydn was his entire life uh, an employee of the Esterhazy family and wrote music for them, one of the big noble um, families of Hungary, who you know, provided him with a probably rather comfortable living and he became very famous, but he was also like in this relationship with, with them. And the first one who really broke free completely after Mozart was Beethoven. And I think that also wouldn't have been possible without the societal changes, changes that came along through the French Revolution. And Beethoven pretty much, he had a couple of sponsors who were mostly of the Viennese nobility, but he was, compared to Mozart, much, much, much more independent, much freer, much more opinionated, much more outspoken. And that whole like idea of the, the genius in art is also something that only appears at the end of the 18th, early 19th century. And then the 19th century is kind of the, the century of the artist as genius. But just going back to that for a second, because wasn't Mozart sort of regarded as a child genius, like he was, or a prodigy, I guess? A child prodigy, but not not as much as a composer in the first place, but more as a, like a, um, a, a pianist mostly. And because he had this sister, nobody talks about the girls in that time, right? Yeah. Um, who, who was a very... Um, Oh, no, he was playing the violin and his sister was playing the piano. Their parents had them tour Europe together from a very, very young age. And so they ended up all over the place, played for all the courts, even though I think um, I think Mozart never made it to Versailles. It's like the parents were kind of these original showbiz parents, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, things sometimes don't change all that much. It's a bit like Judy Garland, right? Right. But they were sort of, you know, at the same time, they were relying on handouts. Yeah, yeah. they would go and play for the court. And then, you know, um, the, the tradition of the day was that when you played for a certain for sovereign, then you would get a, a gift. Right. A golden snuff box. Yeah. And of course, Leopold, his father, was um, in the employee of the Archbishop of Salzburg. And they always needed to negotiate those absences. And sometimes Leopold needed to stay in Salzburg and then um, Mozart's mother traveled with them and, and she actually died in Paris while they were on tour together. Yeah. yeah, that's a sad story. So it's a very sad story. So do you think that though that this prodigy or, or genius as we later came to call it is like a, a nature or a nurture situation? Can you, are you born with this like uncanny ability or if he hadn't had these parents bringing the music to him? Yeah. It's all about, I mean, I think there is something like uh, a gift that other people don't have, right? And then you need to hone the gift, mm -hmm. you need to train. I think in, in, in classical music, especially without training, you're not going to get very far, as talented as you might may be. But I mean, there's definitely also because he was from a musical family, his, his father certainly recognized a gift that was unusual and then decided to develop that, you know, more or less forcefully. No, I mean, I think that's why, why it's so important for children to have access to, to the arts, because um, this is not something like you're not born with it all, but I think you're born with some of it. If you're not given the opportunity for it to be discovered in young age, even you might take an, an interest in it as an adult, it's usually too late to train. Right. My daughter, my four-year-old is going to a singing lesson this evening. I'm proud to announce. She asked, she requested singing oh, lessons. Good. So. Excellent. <laughs> Royal Conservatory or? 
Uh, no, not the Royal, no, the Kaufman Center for the Arts, just around the corner. Mo Kaufman's grandson, interestingly, Toronto Connection. The context, the 1700s, Salzburg and Vienna, there were public floggings, hangings up until a certain point, rampant illness, dust in the streets that was enough to kill somebody. You know, there was no Netflix. What would opera have been to the Viennese? What did it represent to the people who were coming to these operas? Yeah, I mean, you kind of set the frame already, right? I mean, there was very little um, other entertainment or when you think about available media, right? There was obviously no television, no radio, no movies, no not nothing of something to think all the things we consume daily today. Compared to that, like the entertainment options would have been really poor, or the access to media, like even a printed newspaper would have been a rarity, or books, printed books were much, much rarer and much more expensive than they would be today. So theater and an opera would be a big part of what people were able to do. Um, and then a city like Vienna, which was a capital um, of, a, of a huge empire, would have had a, a rather solid cultural infrastructure, even though not all of it was very well like organized. And then when you look at opera in that time, there's commercial opera and mostly like subsidized court opera. And Mozart actually worked for both. Um, he never had a permanent position, but he, but he wrote... Yeah, I think mostly the, the, the serious composers of his time, like let's say like Salieri and others who had a relationship with the court, they would not have crossed over into, into the commercial side of things. But I think it also shows it's a generational thing. Salieri was older. And I think Mozart might just have been a bit more open to all of this and a bit more independent in his thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and to write La Clemenza di Tito and the Magic Flute pretty much at the same time shows an incredible range that he had as a composer. Yeah. Right? And he probably needed all of this to kind of satisfy his own intellectual curiosity and his urge for creativity. But I think there's also a lot of um, nostalgia around this. Like people always think that in places like Milan and Vienna and that, that are like very, very um, connotated with like being old capitals of opera. People think of it as like a very like, popular and everybody went to the opera. I, I think that's not true when you look at the size of the theaters compared to the size of the population. And commercial theater was obviously where you bought a ticket and you went. Um, but for most of the, the stuff that was organized by the court, it was more of a like an by invitation only scenario. Yes. And if the sovereign went, and a lot of other people had to go, um, it was part of part of the court's representation. Like uh, in a way that the sovereign of the absolutist period expressed themselves. Is what this whole? I mean, starting with Louis the Fourteenth, who was really a master in the matter, is that you show that like the sovereign is like the greatest in everything, right? And has the greatest of everything. It cost them a lot of money, but they were ready. Soft power. Yeah, they were ready to spend it. Yeah, it's, it's totally soft power. Right. Um, and so this thinking that if you are the emperor of the Holy Roman, Roman Empire or the king of France, that you just need like you need your Moliere and you need your your opera and it just needs to be the best there is. And even though um, I think they controlled expense for it much, much more than one would think. I mean, they still spend a lot of money on it if you compare it to today's money. And the, the idea of it being a... Um, 
how you call that, something that's, that has some kind of productivity is a more recent phenomenon, especially when you look at the means that were put into it. Like commercial opera very often was on very small scale, right, just to get a relationship of cost and revenue, whereas the, the, the court operas were often on a much larger scale. And even if you look at old drawings, when you look at the performance, I just, we, we opened a, an exhibition at the, at the Garnier about Moliere and music a couple of days ago. And you look at these drawings, like after Moliere had died, there was a, a performance of Le Malade Imaginaire at Versailles. And you see that there's a huge orchestra in the pit and like very, very few people at the time could have afforded it. Or back to Mozart, I mean, the only really big opera Mozart ever wrote was Idomeneo, which is commissioned by the court in Vienna, uh, in Munich, sorry, by the Bavarian elector. And the Bavarian, the Bavarian elector had come from, from Mannheim, and Mannheim had, had for a long time the most famous orchestra of the 18th century, the best orchestra. So when he became the elector of Bavaria, he brought the orchestra with him, and they had put a lot of means into their court opera in Munich at the time. So Idomeneo is Mozart's only opera before Magic Flute that actually has a large chorus because it was the only company he wrote for that actually had a big chorus. You look at, you know, Figaro, Così, Don Giovanni, it's all, the chorus parts are very insignificant. So, I mean, that was another challenge to actually find someone who was ready to put some means into your artistic activity. Right. Absolutely. And to go with your creative vision, um, because as we know, he had a, a strong creative vision. One question we have for you is, is how did Mozart change opera from your perspective? Um, well, I think very much in the image of his time. For me, um, you mean, you, when you look at the, he's really on that, um, in that transition from the Baroque period into the Romantic period. And when you look at Baroque opera, and they say the best of Baroque opera, like Monteverdi, which is actually interesting because Monteverdi was also a composer who wrote for both commercial and court theater. And Monteverdi's commercial operas are very Shakespearean. Like they have this whole range of, of like the high and the low um, classes and some funny elements and some serious elements. But after that, opera became a little bit more formalized. When you look at all the things that Handel wrote, and I think Handel is an incredible composer, understanding the psychology of his characters very, very um, deeply and being able to express that in music. But none of those characters are really relatable. Because they're all gods or heroes or, and you know, it was a lot about representation too. People didn't, weren't really expecting to see their own life reality on stage. So what Mozart did for the first time, at least with the, with the Da Ponte trilogy, with you know, Figaro, Don Giovanni and Cousy, um, and Figaro in that way is a revolutionary piece because it's like he, he put his own people on stage or his own time. And it was, it was banned at the time, wasn't it? Well, the, the, the opera wasn't, but the, the play was banned in France. I don't know if it had been translated. I don't know if it wasn't banned in Vienna, but it had a, had a certain, let's say, a reputation. Um, and, the, and, the, and the choice of that subject, and especially as a commission for the court, it, it also shows you the difference about the level of tolerance that the court in Vienna had compared to the court in Paris uh, and Versailles mm -hmm. at the time. And Joseph II, and the, the famous line of Joseph II in, in the movie is too many notes Mozart. Right. Who was, the, who was the brother, we have to say, of Marie Antoinette, just for context? He was the brother of Marie Antoinette, but he was one of the most enlightened rulers of the, of the time. So, very enlightened, very in, influenced by the Enlightenment. Right. And, and kind of draconian in his reforms from some perspectives. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that sometimes um, in those days, the sovereigns were more um, into reform than the ones that were being reformed, like exactly. the subject. 
the subjects, <laughs> right? Um, which which caused you know strange tensions. You know, there's this. Um, it was pretty much Joseph II and Frederick II of Prussia, who, who were driving this, at least in Central Europe. And there's this funny story about you know the potato coming to Europe from you know North America, and big moment, a, a very big moment, but nobody wanted to eat it. They were afraid of it, that they thought it was poisonous or, or they had maybe eaten the fruit and had died from it. And then so Frederick II famously forced the Prussian peasants to eat potatoes because he had been, <laughs> become convinced of the nutritious benefits of this new plant. But um, to get people to actually adhere to it, was, it was quite hard. And they sometimes then used, even as very enlightened monarchs, very, very, very um, draconian measures to force people to do mm. things they didn't want to do. But it was for the best. It was for the best. Wasn't it Palmontier in France who popularized mm -hmm. the potato? It's an uphill struggle for that. That's why we have the Palmontier. Caché Palmontier. Well, I'm very glad that this is coming up because we will soon be talking about cuisine. We will. Uh, just like several side notes here. I, I always find it so fascinating to remember how formidable both Marie Antoinette's mother, the Archduchess, and her brother were when she kind of went on off in a slightly different direction, although that can be hotly contested. We'll have to do an episode about her. I want to go back to the kind of approachability aspect of of opera and particularly as it exists today, particularly as it exists today in France, perhaps, because that applies to your to your role now. But opera has been called the total art form. Now, I'm sure you probably do see it that way, um, but it can be intimi intimidating. Yeah, but it, I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot to be said about that, of course. I think it's all about the way you frame it, and it's all about how you empower people to make it their own. I think every art is intimidating in a way. It should be intimidating because it's big, it's important, it's, it's deep, it's complex, it's sometimes very difficult or impossible to understand, and it challenges us as humans, right? This is, this is why we invented art, to challenge ourselves mm. as humans, to find, to find an outlet of expression for ourselves, be it in movement or in visual art or making music, singing, whatever. I mean, I think this is an, an urge that we have as humanity. And then we express this urge, but not everybody understands it the same way. That's why ideally then a dialogue starts about why do we need this and how do you do it that way, not that way. But it can be very intimidating, especially when we talk about, you know, masterpieces of, of art that are hundreds of years old and that everybody says, oh, this is so great. Of course, then everything, well, I am supposed to like this, but I don't find the access. But actually, I have to say, when I when I was very fortunate to be at uh, La Flûte Enchantée, the magic flute, the other night, I was thinking actually about the relatability of the characters, first of all. Like, some of them are downright mm -hmm. silly and quite approachable. And I found Gallimard, the, the, the French publisher Gallimard, has a kid's singing mm -hmm. kid's book section. I'm not sure if you're aware. And I found... <laughs> For my 19-month-old uh, daughter, uh, La Flûte Enchantée, and it sings, like it takes over the whole living room, and she's now doing these <laughs> Queen of the Night opera performances. Queen of the Night is magic for like the, for the kids. It's magic. And it made me realize how catchy it is. 
I went as a child. My last name is Knight. And so I thought it was me, obviously. And <laughs> I really, we had a poster from the magic flute in our house as a child. Like it was such an important, yeah, it is magical. But it's catchy as well. Like it's a kind of tune that stays in your head. The, the brilliance of the magic flute is that Mozart took this text by Shikaneda, who was a popular actor in Vienna with his own theater. And he convinced Mozart to collaborate. And Mozart just magnified the whole thing to a degree that's absolutely mind-blowing. He still kept it, kept it accessible, which is it's like one of the biggest miracles in all art. Yeah. That it's on an incredibly high level, but it's also incredibly accessible. And it kind of in all ages, and it's, it sounds very cliche, but you know, I have been living with the magic flute for 40 years something. It's a gift that keeps giving. And um, like all good arts, like the, all the good, good books, you know, when you haven't read something in many years and you take it back on of course you're a different person and it gives you different things and that's really why we need art and i think that's why we need complex art too because we need the gift that keeps giving and we we, we you know in the in the age of netflix and we live in a kind of a yeah. time where everything is a bit pre-packaged for us and we are not really invited to think about it we're like presented with all the conclusions and then we're asked to adhere or to like or to dislike certain characters which brings me to Mozart, which one of the greatest qualities about Mozart's characters for me is that he never judges any of them, mm. right? You can you have a lot of room as an audience member to go into these operas and make up your mind who you want to like and who you don't want to like. And you're not going to be right or wrong. It's just a decision that Mozart allows you to make, and it's not always the same decision, depending on which production you see, who are the artists, and so on. And I think that's when we brings us to the empowerment, right? I think we absolutely need to empower our audiences to assume their right to like or dislike, because that is the, the, the first connection with art that we have, and it's completely independent of if it's a painting or, or an opera or a book, is like you have an emotional connection. You like it or you don't like it. And... I think very often today people feel like, I, I don't know if I have that right. Like, how, who am I to not like Mozart mm. or, you know, whatever it is. And I think we have to say, no, this is like your, we hope that you will react emotionally. I always say indifference is our biggest enemy, right? I would rather have people hate with a passion what they see in the theater than walk out and not think about it at all. I mean, ideally we work on, on them loving it but um, I think I think that's but but you know you can't really this is not something you can determine I mean there's certain things you can do to put an audience off but but in the end um, the interaction is something that's very spontaneous and the difference between us and a museum is if you're in a museum and you like walk through and you look at the paintings if one painting doesn't tell you a story you just can keep walking in theater you have to stay there at least until intermission which at least what most people do, they don't just walk out if it doesn't tell them a story. And so it kind of heightens that emotional reaction. Like you either keep loving it with greater intensity as it goes on, or you kind of keep rejecting it greater intensity as, as the evening goes on. And it's, that's why people can feel so strongly about it. In opera, even more than in theater, because music has a certain quality of engaging you that, that the spoken word doesn't always have, mm -hmm. at least in my opinion. Yeah, it appeals to the emotions. Uh, colleagues at the Comédie Française will forgive me. <laughs> no, no, but I see that's the whole fascination for me about it. And I think it's also true that the show 
And it happens to me. Like, I mean, I go, I, I cannot never kind of shake off my professional viewpoint anymore because I've been doing this for too long. But when I go somewhere else to see a show, um, then I try to be like very unprepared because I want to have a very um, unfiltered impression of it all. So when people ask me, I come to the opera first, I've never been to an opera, I'm coming to see this or that for the first time, what should I prepare? I always say, don't prepare anything. Mm. Um, I don't want you to ruin your experience before you've had it. Right. It's like watching too long a trailer before yeah. a movie. And um, so say, so you you know, we have like one basic service that's today provided by all the opera companies in the world, which is your titles. So you might not speak that language the opera's in, but we will provide you with your titles. You will be able to follow the plot, the minimum of help that we offer. And from there, just kind of enjoy the walk, right? And then make up your own mind. I think that's really, really important. I think most audience members actually are entirely capable of judging a work of art. You just really need to tell them over and over again that they're actually allowed to do that. Right, right. That That's the point. It's supposed to mean something to them or not. Yeah. And then, of course, the interesting thing is that when you after that, and I think the people who really get into it emotionally, they will want to get into it intellectually as well. Mm. And And that's where the real engagement starts. Like if you love something so much that you want to read more about it, you want to talk to people about it, then it becomes a thing. Yeah. And you want to summon the ghost of Mozart to an imaginary dinner party on the radio. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I see it's fascinating because we, we know quite a bit about his personality because there's so many letters and everything. But to think about what he would have done sitting there, I mean, even one of my um, fascinations is to think about, you know, we do this, his work and the work, works of so many other composers today, hundreds of years after they've died. <clears throat> what would happen if they walked into a theater today to attend one of their own operas? Would they recognize it? Oh, oh that would be fascinating. My other fantasy was to, and tell me if this is way off the mark, but I was thinking that it may interest Mozart. We were talking about Monica and I earlier, venue for this dinner party. And we ruled out Paris just because of the tender memories there for him. I offered to host him here in Toronto. I thought he would find North America fascinating, Canada quite interesting. I live by the lake here in Parkdale. There's a lot to show him. Uh, and after, you know, the 1700s and smallpox and everything that he was up against, he might appreciate the sanitation and sterility of 2022 Toronto. Canadian healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hoping if he stays long enough, I'd like to take him to a concert by perhaps the weekend or one of our Toronto moderns, somebody whose music is just very much of now, and I, I would be so curious to see how Mozart would react to the weekend. Yes, me too, actually. And I, and I think what's interesting in what I do is very often you have like very high level athletes or, you know, musicians from other um, disciplines who are also very outstanding in their, um, in what they do. They have an innate appreciation what classical musicians or, or dancers do. Um, and it's always a very interesting dialogue because you kind of, they meet not on the same terms, but somehow on the same level. Right. And it's interesting. It, it's interesting what happens. Also, one should never forget today, classical musicians, like I look at the young artists that we train here at the opera, it's people in their 20s. It's not that they live in this um, 18th century bubble. They happen to be skilled for opera. They happen to be a little bit more talented in that than other people. They love what they do. They, they want to kind of be credible ambassadors for it. But they also didn't go out and, um, you know, go to a, to a club or right, have, a, have a normal like 20-somethings life. That's a, for me, that's 
essentially the essence of what we do. The age of a particular piece, actually the more I do this, the less significant it becomes. Because if we don't perform those pieces, the printed music on a shelf, right? We need artists of today to perform them for audiences of today. And that's really in the end, the only thing that counts. If we want to keep it alive in the, like in the sense of the world, like really alive. And I love that French term of spectacle vivant, which doesn't really exist in another language. There's no exact correspondence in English or German or whatever. And I love that because it's all about that. It's about doing it here in this moment for an audience that's physically present. And that for me is the whole fascination about what we do, that we essentially recreate it every night as if it had never been done before. I love that. Well, that's no small feat. They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could florals? do for spring. Groundbreaking. Let's just decide what we're all going to wear because he's going to get here soon. And then uh, and we have to decide exactly what food we're serving. And then and then we get to the fun stuff. OK, so obviously, like if we're going for his epoch, it would be like wigs and white powder faces and fake moles. But it's like it's not the easiest look to pull off. No. Also, I'm not so you know how the whole big thing started. No. It's again, it's Louis XIV, who had great hair in his youth <laughs> that he was very proud of. And then I can't remember which illness he had, but he it, it really killed his hair. Oh. And that's when he started the wig fashion. Wow. And because he did it, <laughs> everybody copied it. At his behest. And, and then from, and from there it went. Then, of course, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm really not into wigs because wigs is um, pretty much synonymous with lice and other... Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, it sounds like he, Mozart spent a lot of time being deloused. In, in, other, in other parasites that you don't really <laughs> need in your life. Let's, let's cut the wigs. <laughs> Let's leave that yeah. aside. Let's go for a more modern take because, well, the Opéra de Paris has a very actually hand-in-hand -hand relationship with fashion, with a specific fashion house that we know and love called Chanel. And I have had the great fortune to see, you know, at the um, opening of the dance season, the, I mean, first of all, it's just so beautiful from an aesthetic and fashion perspective. All the little petit rats, the little rats, as they call them, the kids, all the way up to the prima ballerina doing this extraordinary choreography in the Palais Garnier, which I described before Alexander got here, is just breathtaking. I mean, it's just, um, it's just, I mean, I just cry the entire time because of the beauty, <laughs> beauty, I sound really pretentious, but I find it's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I can confirm it's irresistible for even for the ones of us who work there um, almost every day. And on a gala night, when you have the, the big staircase with the flowers and it's breathtaking. It's unreal. And so you feel like you do slightly feel that you're on a movie set or a fashion set, you know, and on a, on a beautiful sort of fashion shoot. And everyone's like the star of their own show when you're walking in and walking out. And it, I, I personally think humbly, if, they're, if you're ever going to dress up for anything, it should be going to the ballet or the opera. If it's not something that you love, you should you should dress in your own way. And the, so the prima ballerina, 
in the performance I was referring to, wears a Chanel. Her tutu is Chanel. Mine too. If I remember correctly, we, we owe a, a visit of the Pelegandier to Emma. Oh yes. my goodness. Oh, I would be beyond delighted. I'll bring the juice. And I'll organize your Chanel look for you. Um, okay, so perfect. So we're all wearing, I think we should wear the Métier d'Art collection because that is the handiwork of so many artisans and it's a French traditional, you know, it, it can only exist in France for a number of reasons. And, 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 and I think we should pay honor to that. I have worn, have had the fortune to wear Métier d'Art to the opera before, and it's so comfortable, even though it's like incredibly detailed, which is almost like a good metaphor for our approachability and yet the incredible detail of what we're going to see. So I feel like, I feel like that now, I'm sorry, this is excluding the, the, the male, um, dressing counterpoint it's my only complaint about um that particular fashion house but mozart was very finely dressed i mean those beautiful oh he was silk military style red suits with the blue i remember one had a sky blue lining and the gold stitching although i think people in those days would dress better they would also have very few clothes mm -hmm. oh that's interesting yeah and they would wear the good clothes Next to never. Investment pieces. Yes. People. Investment pieces. And then they would have their daily um, their daily frock, which was much, much less sophisticated. It's like the older generation. You, maybe you have that um, for your grandparents. My grandparents used to have one room in their house, which was like the good dining room, where all the good china was and the nice dining table, but it would only be used like a couple of times a year. There were not a lot of children in there. <laughs> no, no, no. It was always kind of locked, right? And then you would go there for Christmas and a couple of other high holidays or special birthdays. And that was it. And otherwise, that room was like always off limits. And I think that's how they dressed in the 18th century. Bon appétit. So are we having uh, Mozart in your special room, Emma? <laughs> We've only got the one dining room. I may take some of the toys out of it for the occasion and, you know, perhaps okay. reposition some of the children's artwork just to make sure it looks up to scratch. Uh, but in terms of menu, so we know from his letters, there's this famous rumor going around the internet that he absolutely loved liver dumplings and sauerkraut. And then there's a naysayer who writes a blog post saying, That was mentioned once in a letter that Leopold wrote to his wife and daughter explaining that Mozart had had a good meal of liver dumplings and sauerkraut. It doesn't mean it's his favorite thing. And so the internet is torn on this subject, but we know he enjoyed <laughs> that the one time. As I mentioned, I'm very excited to cook. I'm not going to be catering. I just don't think liver dumplings are going to happen from my kitchen. But as a nod, as a kind of, you know, an integration of what we think he would have loved, and as a real special occasion food. I was thinking for an appetizer with our cold champagne, because it is Mozart, we should have toast of either pandemie or this being Toronto, Hala, with some really nice thinly sliced foie gras and a little bit of fleur de sel or chicken liver pate if we prefer. But I've had a version of this with foie gras in Paris at a great restaurant, and it's very, very good, with a sprinkling of fleur de sel and some fig jam on the side, figaro jam. So that's what I'm picturing for the appetizer. What do you guys think? Canadian lobster. A little lobster, perfect, oh. yes. Canadian lobster, that's a great idea. Oh, and maybe with some curl de sucrine, like some nice little crunchy yes. lettuce. Yeah, very nice. Also, um, there. 
North American oysters, which he would never have tried. Yeah. They taste quite different from the European ones. Oh, and they're, they're brilliant. I'll make the mignonette, but could I ask you to do the shucking? Because I don't trust myself with a shucker. <laughs> Sure, I'll try to live up to my, um, to my duty. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that sounds like a very good first course. And then this may be something of a cliche, but he strikes me as somebody who appreciated kind of like an honest, you know, an honest meal, as in not overly pretentious. We've been fancy, we've had our foie gras, but just from reading kind of his culinary proclivities in letters and also having watched The Sound of Music set in Austria this past weekend with my children... I'm having a strong hankering for schnitzel with noodles. Schnitzel with noodles! Some kind of fusion food. Okay, yes, we could definitely do... Well, so the schnitzel that I have in mind does have sesame seeds and panko. Yeah, that's going in that direction, yeah. I mean, I always feel I became homeless in Toronto when David Lee closed um, Notabene. I never got over that. It was about two years, two years before I left, but I didn't find... And because Notabene was so close to the opera, I was there all the time. It was so great. So, so great. We loved the kind of the, the bar room, like not the main dining room, but the bar was just so perfect. Well, the greatest thing about the bar was this kind of weird greenish, yellowish light um, in the window. I mean, you would sit there and look out in the window with the people walking by on Queen Street. It would be like as David Lynch as it gets. It's, it's true. And those stores are pretty seedy. There's like a, you know, a weed shop and a condom shop. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder if it made it through COVID. Is that what happened to this restaurant? Well, he turned it. He turned it into a. Um, well, he he kept the restaurant, but he renamed it Planta, and he turned it into some yeah, a plant based. Um, he actually does amazing plant based food, but it was turned much more Asian, and it turned much more into for the young crowd with loud music. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, he, he opened Planta in Yorkville, which was very successful, and then this is kind of like the sister restaurant to Planta now. So it's different because it was such a special, it was such a unique vibe. I don't I don't need super loud music while I eat. A bit of background music is great, but not super. Which, what should we play for Mozart, by the way, like in the background? Nothing. Like nothing. no, like no. Our <laughs> conversation will be the music. Okay. Yeah, I think he would probably get like quite distracted by it, and he would if he didn't know it. You know, he was um, he had absolute hearing, so he was actually a- able to listen to a piece of music and write it down. That's unreal. So he would probably do that if we. That's even better than the app Shazam. That's pretty incredible. Well, it's the it's the human it's the human it's the human version. Let's That's say. pretty amazing. <laughs> well, we'll have to test him. Maybe if there's enough wine flowing before we go to the weekend concert, we'll we'll test that skill. Um, as well as I would like to see him play under a handkerchief on the piano. Or we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't had dessert. And for somebody you know, oh. who lived in Vienna for such a long time, I think dessert, we can probably safely say, is the most important course this evening. No, no better desserts anywhere in the world than in Austria. So in this case, we may need to bring in some expert help. I was thinking, though, that we should have two items for dessert. One, some very, very good hot chocolate as a nod to the scene in Cosi Fan Tutte, when the servant is preparing hot chocolate and tastes a little bit. So he might appreciate that. And alongside the hot chocolate, a beautiful gâteau de l'opéra. Wasn't invented in his day. It wasn't invented, no. Nadej can help us. Nadej can help us. You really do know your local references. That's amazing. Uh, Nadej is the best patisserie uh, in Toronto. Nadej is so good. Shout out. 
Russell is another really good one, started by a former greenhouse team member um, who trained under Joel Rubouchon. But so opera, gâteau mm-hmm. opéra is layers of almond sponge cake soaked in coffee syrup, layered with ganache and coffee and French buttercream, and then covered in chocolate ganache with gold foil, which I think is a nice touch for the occasion. Lovely touch. I'm starving. <laughs> we, we should offer coffee also because coffee was a real a new thing. In Mozart's time. That's a very, very good idea. Let's offer coffee. And it was a bit of a, a craze. And of course, the the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was the, like the, the place where coffee houses really developed in Vienna and in Budapest. And... Mm, true. Okay, so coffee was all the rage. Salzburg, um, to come back to his hometown, Salzburg still has two or three of the best coffee houses anywhere in the world. And like... In, in operation uninterrupted since 17 something. Wow. Wow. We would love to include their names in the show notes. Well, there's, there's really, there's really two, Tomaselli um, and the Café Bazaar. Those are the two big classics. Thank you. Brilliant. We'll link to them. Well, guys, I think we might be ready. It sounds like he's going to arrive pretty soon by a horse-drawn carriage, I suppose. Or what? How, would, how is he arriving? Does anyone know? Yeah, probably. Motorized scooter? Motorized <laughs> That's not very good for the wig, but we're not doing wigs. Oh, I think I can hear. I can hear his approach. You hear the scooter rolling up? Action! Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Alexander. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. This was fun. So my final question to you. Yes, please. When will we get greenhouse juice Rive Gauche? <laughs> exactly. That question That's what is we need to know. true music to my ears. And I am excited to play it aloud at our next board meeting and pose the question <laughs> to... We most urgently need your juices and your smoothies because this is the one thing that Paris really hasn't figured out. Oh my gosh. It would go down like coffee in the time of Mozart. I think it would. Gosh, you guys really know the way to my heart. It's the culinary revolution that Paris needs. And I'm actually very serious. Curious to know what our esteemed guest was on about? Well, you're in luck. Greenhouse is now available across North America from drinkgreenhouse.com. You can find our whole selection of organic booster shots including best-selling wellness shot, Fiery Ginger, at drinkgreenhouse.com and use the promo code FANFARE25 to get 25% off your first order. That's all.